in this talk with you this afternoon. I would like to explore the relationship of two areas. One is view and the other is action. Oh yes, oh, keep, turn it on. Oh yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's definitely a, a primary cause for recording if it's turned on. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry about that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, with the uh, talk with you this afternoon, the uh, theme of the talk is view and action and the relationship uh, between the two. With regard to the uh, uh, area of the view but whatever it it may be about to notice in ourselves the responses uh, uh, which may come and just incidentally one of the interesting uh, questions uh, put to the Buddha some two and a half thousand years ago was how do we protect the truth valid question to uh, uh, meditate on to see what might emerge from such a question the response which he gave which I appreciated um, at the time and still do was we protect the truth by knowing that a view is a view whatever the view may be by knowing this is a view rather than making claims around uh, it. Coming back for a moment to the uh, theme this afternoon uh, uh, with you. Here we are as human beings, making our steps, walking on the earth, living and breathing, and in the diversity of events, a multiplicity of views uh, arise. Quite often, there's a such a range of various views which uh, uh, take place, but this can contribute to a lot of thinking about. When we look at the views which uh, arise, <coughs> there might be four responses. And to know ourselves with regard to our views is to recognise and pick up if one of those responses is arising. person comes to you, come to another person, or with the thought. One of them, fairly simple, yes. Somebody asks you about something, you're sharing, talking about uh, something, there's a dialogue going on, it's a conversation, and there is the the view, yes, whatever that might be about. There is also the view, no. Quite often, in a, in a rather intense uh, society, sometimes people are placing upon us quite a lot of demand to make up our mind one way or the other. I want a yes or I want to know. 
and that may show itself from the politicians right down to working, family, personal life. To recognize in the view whether underneath it that it is supported by pressure. We can place quite a lot of pressure upon ourselves with the yes or with the no. It may be wise, the yes or the no, but it may emerge out of the pressure. And what we really want is relief from the pressure. So then we say yes or no. It's relief from the pressure. There are circumstances uh, as well in which the response to the uh, situation can be both. To really notice these in some of the communications, in which the response is is both yes and no. Or it could be this, or it could be that. With the uh, influence and the impact of uh, such a such a view, uh, yes and no, there could it be we're not very good at making up our mind. We want to see it. Well, it could be <coughs> like this, but it could be like that, and maybe it could be like that as well. And it can be that the voice which is coming out of us is concerned about conflict, being in a confrontation with the other. So there is the wish to be pleasing. So then, in the name of being flexible, relaxed, easygoing, rather than have a yes or a no, because it might be a polarisation with the other, we'll take the easier one. Well, maybe yes and maybe no, to try and keep it pleasing. The spiritual Buddhist world uses this view a lot, I might say. It's terrified of differences of opinion. So the outcome of it is this trying to accommodate and be pleasing and nice and comfortable and somehow it's not very satisfying. There may be situations where it genuinely is a yes and a no. If so, it calls upon us to be very clear and specific in the communication what we are saying yes to and what we are saying no to. Genuinely can go in both in both uh, directions. To put this just for a quick uh, moment to get the picture, um, those I am not one of those, but those who are of a liberal left disposition, uh, one will hear. In fact, far too often there, in terms of refugees, asylum seekers, new immigrants and so forth, they're very tolerant 
view, which has some merit to it, and slight tones and notions, slight is an English understatement, of superiority with regard to those who say, we don't want any more refugees or immigrants or uh, people in our country and for all all the reasons uh, that go uh, with it. But it may, the view, these are the the, the liberals, uh, uh, may not understand what the dynamic is of those who resist, who are called belonging to the right, belonging to the far right. So we take Britain as a small example here. I'll try not to make this whole conversation on this one. Keep it as short as I can. When people arrived in the, the country who needed support, the government, the British government, and it happens in other U, U, U countries uh, as well, delegated areas for those new arrivals, the refugees and the immigrants and asylum seekers, to go to different parts of the country. They were sent to these areas because the government paid private organisations, businesses, to do the work. It was found in doing that when they did the work, where did they send them? To the poorest parts of the country where accommodation and living standards and everything was as cheap as possible. The outcome of that, that these very poor communities in rural and city-based communities were just overwhelmed and over uh, with the demands upon them in their schools, in their health services, uh, in their social life, etc. And that triggered a lot of rebellion. Uh, there, we can't take this. And in Britain, the wealthy constituencies, including our Prime Minister, and all the wealthy constituencies, often in and around London, did not accept one, did not receive one single refugee, immigrant or asylum seeker because it would have cost the companies more money because the properties and the rooms available are much more expensive. Is it any wonder that communities who have lived in, uh, for centuries uh, here felt overwhelmed in the space of a short period of time and the outcome of all of that is uh, protest. And what's the, the protest? They are the problem. They, meaning the refugees and the asylum seekers and our brothers and sis- sisters who desperately need our hospitality and our support but it's the system which is the which is the problem so we have been reading in britain i can't remember the percentage 30 35 percent of people voting for the right far right here or, um, around berlin that's what we've been reading so we need a deeper and clearer understanding of the wishes and the needs of of people and have a, a, a different view in which there is nothing for the liberal left to be so patronising and conceited about with uh, those 
who have a, a different kind of view. We need to understand where that view is coming from. In the exploration, sometimes it's yes, sometimes it is no, sometimes it is uh, uh, both. And the other, sometimes it is neither of those first three. And therefore, to repeat a little bit, we may be in a situation, all sorts of them, the yes, the no, the both or the neither, may be the response there. And sometimes in the, in the neither, it can be a valid response in which, hand on heart, we do not know what to say. We can't say yes, we can't say no, we can't say both, we don't know what to say, we don't know how to respond to whatever the issue may be uh, about. But not to deceive oneself, we might say, I don't have a view. This is a view. It has a consequence, it has an outcome. And it might require from us, if we don't know, to rather than just leave it, oh, I really haven't thought about it. I really don't know what to say. I, I can't say yes, and I can't say no, and I can't say both. So I really don't know. Pathetic. And it, but it might be the fact, not like that one should know. It might be the fact. But if it's important, and the fact is I don't know, find out. Simple enough. Take the steps, take the action. Who can I learn from? What can I learn from? What do I need to do so that some possibly understanding can emerge rather than staying in a very passive position. Because if you do, and if you say I don't know and you do nothing, those who think they know, they, those who think they know, with the arrogance, with the self-righteousness, and with the ego and with the power, will dominate the lives of those who are saying I don't know. We end up submissive. We end up quiet creatures. We end up rather fearful and afraid to state our voice. There's consequences. It's not like people will say, Oh, she doesn't know. He doesn't know. They don't know. Well, that's all right. Everybody's entitled to be ignorant. <laughs> Everybody's entitled to not know. It's not the climate and culture we are living in. And it's to find the wisdom, it is to find the insights, and to find the compassion, and to express the concern, and to understand those who think very, very differently from you and me. Very, very uh, differently. And that might be thinking very, very differently with those who are quite close to us. It could be the person that we are living with. 
we have to understand more. Because very easily, upon the presentation of her or his view and her or his state of uh, mind, the story or the content that's going on may be that there is so much more behind it which you've got to learn from. It's very easy for all of us to take at face value the view and opinion about whatever, the state of mind, whatever that might be, uh, the, the, the habit. But it may be an appeal for something else. You live with a partner, let's just say, or you live with kids or whatever it might be, and the common voice that one hears is that he, she or they are constantly complaining, constantly finding fault. And reactivity and arguing and tensions constantly uh, 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 arising there. And it's not easy for us to listen to the other in that mood. It is not easy for the other to listen to us in our similar reaction to the other. Two voices can be expressing exactly the same state of mind. Blame. And so one might begin with the blame and then the other acts blaming the other for being so negative or angry and the blame. The one who starts it tends to end up being the bigger villain. And the one who's reacting against it has the notions of being superior because you, whoever you is, started it. It doesn't matter who started it. Both can be expressing the same state of mind. And it doesn't matter who ended it. But it leaves, because we're vulnerable creatures, a really unpleasant feeling afterwards. And the residue of that unpleasant feeling of the regularity of the argument, as soon as we see the person, we wake up in the morning and the person's beside us in bed or the right? having a bit of toast and a cup of coffee in the, in the morning. As soon as we see the person, the memory, the image, arises so quickly that we're looking through the image. We're not with the reality. We're living in the image. And crashes in relationship may not be about the reality that we use that language. It might be about the consistency of the image that two people or more have between us. It's not easy to walk out of a different, different, difficult conversation with the other, with the quiet resolution not to carry any story about it, any picture or image of the other or oneself, and then to be able to see the other, the view of the other, 
completely afresh. Not looking at the other through the past. Not easy. But it's a hell of a lot easier than walking around in life with important people in our, our life and carrying a picture of them, of who they are, based exclusively, narrowly on the past. That's, that's nightmare. So it takes a quiet resolution, difficult interaction, and it might be that in a conflict or an argument with the other, and particularly if it's got some repetitions to it there, perhaps one or the other, the deeper request is to be loved. The deeper request is for attention. And the only way the person is getting attention is by arguing. You have to listen carefully with the voice. And it might be the same for us as well. We wish for attention and we get it by being very difficult. It's going to end in tears, isn't it? It's called divorce. So, exploration uh, there to see what connections can be made. With action, as was touched upon briefly a uh, little while uh, ago, as I, m I mentioned uh, to you, as at the uh, Extinction Rebellion uh, campaign uh, in London. One of the uh, inspirational, of the many uh, blessings uh, of it, is there is a major issue, climate emergency. There are thousands of uh, people, the whole spectrum of uh, ages, both uh, in Britain and of course uh, elsewhere, wonderful demonstrations taking place here in Germany and 60 other countries uh, as well in which it invites and it is inviting something creative out of it and the initial statement of the founders of Extinction Rebellion and it has a <coughs> Dharma flavour to it this is that the old method of demonstrations simply are not working. And those of us who have been on plenty of uh, demonstrations over the, uh, over the years know only too well that in our demonstrations, as much as possible, there they would start nine or ten in the morning, we would walk through the town and the city with the banners and the posters and the flies and the, and the leaflets uh, and so forth, and then by the middle of late afternoon, we'd finished, there would be a number of speakers, and those women and men would, with the megaphone or the loudspeakers would speak, thank you very much, we've had our demonstration, if the numbers were big enough, it would get some news, maybe front page news in the next day, and that was it. Those days are gone. 
they're finished, they're out of date. Change is on the way. And the key word with the change is disruption. It is the buzz word. And what that means is it's inviting and it's happening more and more creativity of whole diverse groups of people to initiate things in a completely fresh way. And one aspect, only one aspect of that, of the disruptions, is bringing and doing things which just weren't conceivable before. Like in Oxford Street, they brought in one huge <coughs> boat. The first boat in a thousand years ever seen in the middle of the city. And they put it right there in the heart of consumerism. <laughs> and with all the music and the entertainment that was, that was going on. <coughs> they were on the bridges, occupying the bridges. And in the occupation of the, the bridges, there, because the ethic of kindness is so strong with Extinction Rebellion, and the ethic of non-violence is so strong in the DNA of the culture uh, so far, that because it's a matter of getting a wider outreach of publicity there, that the request was that in the campaigns taking place, the meeting with the police were very simple, please arrest us, we wish to be arrested. Because the more arrests there are, the more likely we'll get to the front page the following morning, and we're counting on 500 arrests uh, there. And the police then said, look, we would love to arrest you, you're occupying the bridges, the traffic can't go by, except for ambulances, that was the one concession. <coughs> there, but the government have cut the police budget so much, we haven't got the number of police to arrest you, and the budget, we haven't got the vehicles to do it. So it turned out, initially, only 89 people were arrested. Now there are 110 or 20,000 people who are um, members, myself one of them, of Extinction Rebellion, uh, there and organisation and communications taking place so the police set up a thousand cells it wasn't enough because there are now 1500 uh, cells uh, there with the, with the various arrests which are taking place <coughs> and this range of different people engaged in different, different things there from the guy that was laid on uh, the top of the aeroplane at uh, the London City Airport to the person who bought a ticket, boarded the plane and then with these business people flying out of London City Airport giving them a lecture on using aeroplanes the, when they could just use Zoom or something uh, 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 else to all the uh, gatherings uh, and the signposts that were uh, uh, taking uh, place when two friends um, got hold of a fire engine God knows where they got it from but they got hold of a fire engine they went down I think it was to the treasury they got the hose pipe out they put red paint in it and then they 
raid the treasury wall. They got arrested, imagine, uh, <laughs> with this watery red uh, paint as a, as a, as a protest uh, there, and much, much more going on. And, uh, today they're, they're um, doing their horizontal meditation practice on top of underground trains. Uh, there, which is a bit more inconvenience, and, and it, the word is disruption. As as well as the children, there Fridays for the future, and taking time out of school and going to cities and towns, sometimes with their big brothers and sisters and their parents, all engaged in a whole variety of supports which are uh, taking place. The Dharma aspect of this from the concern and the compassion and the uh, creative imagination the, dis- the word disruption it is a break with the old to find new ways of, de- of expressing democratic rights for change that's, that's what that's about and it's the same kind of principle in Dharma teaching Dharma teaching is when necessary recognizing and being very clear about the old methods, the old ways, the old views we have, personal, social, global. If we feel it really is not effective, it isn't making a change, then the view, as we've touched upon, needs to change, and for some, the view then comes to an action. It's not enough. And it's not in the Dharma teaching just to have, quote-unquote, the right view. So the Eightfold Path, as a embodiment of the expression, includes in it action. The word is used, but it's used in, in, in a very particular uh, uh, way, or two or three particular ways I just want to touch with you. There. So... Sometimes the view is necessary to find its expression in word, in action, in what we do. And it's important for us to remember that this relationship. Not, it's not enough just sitting on the meditation cushion and have a clear, wise, compassionate view. Uh, uh, it's, it, the meditation work, in fact, is a preparation for a fully engaged uh, way of life. It's not a, obviously an end uh, in itself. And that expression from the view to the action to be really mindful with regard to action and the three aspects uh, to, to this. There is action in the name be careful with this one in the name of doing good. The name of doing good. This is a good thing to do. And I say, be careful with this idea of doing good. There is action in our relationship to life, which the motivation and intention is contributing to harm. And we really need to address both of these two. And quite often the variety of important or influential actions in life are around that which is causing harm 
and that which is uh, so-called doing good. There's vulnerability with both of these. With the doing of harm, it may not even one may not even be conscious of it. The angry voice. It's harmful. Some people just can't handle understandably anger. It hurts, it's painful, there's a contraction. It can bring a trauma into the emotions and into uh, the body. So a person, she or he, has got their anger off their chest, has no understanding or realisation what the impact is, either in the short or the long term. That's what we mean by harmful. Sometimes the lifestyle aspects uh, uh, of it, and we are being asked to look, to take one example, at our diet, the UN is asking us to change our diet, my goodness. Even they have suddenly become conscious. I shouldn't say that, but you know what I mean. And um, so to really take an in- interest and look carefully, is the actions I engage in some way contributing to harm? The use of resources, the use of consumer goods, all the, all the uh, areas need our attention with the time that we live in. The idea of the self, the I, the me, the my, engaged in action of doing good. Others say, oh, she or he or you or me, oh, really doing some good things and leading a, a good life. The difficulty with this notion of doing good it so easily feeds, the, feeds into the self. And if one has an idea, I am doing good, I'm really doing good, I'm going to Extinction Rebellion meetings, I'm really doing good, I'm signing a cheque to give some support to the refugees, I'm really doing good, I'm becoming a social worker, or whatever it might be. The stronger the idea, I am doing good it will bring about the polarity of the view you, whoever you are are not doing good every time not a chance, it won't the idea of I am doing good will be an invitation in the shift and it doesn't take much for us to start Attacking, blaming, fault-finding, speaking behind other people's backs <coughs> and, and uh, undermining them because one is so attached to the idea, I am doing good. <coughs> Even some of the, the people in this world who you and I might feel great concern about shouldn't be too difficult to name a few of them there such people also have the idea what I am doing is a good thing to do so who are we to have some arrogant claim oh what I am doing is really good I'm a good person and he, she, they 
they're not. But he, she and they, they're also thinking what they're doing is good. They're different. The Buddha's Dharma is the doing good with the self involved, of course, and the doing not good, or doing harm, one is under the influence of karma. One is under the influence of the old conditioning impacting upon the present, and it's forming itself in the notions of doing good, or, or hurting, or doing <coughs> harm, or whatever it uh, uh, it, uh, it may be either to oneself or, or to others and the Dharma teachings amongst the many descriptions and methods which go with it is the ending of karma the ending of the identification and the belief and the upholding of the influence of the old upon the present. So the ending of karma is a disruption of the way things were being viewed and acted upon from the past. It'll still be hot, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) We're not far away from the end. And the word, so the word action, which is the word karma, then has its third meaning, it's the important one, in which I'm not, as a human being, just acting in the notion of doing good or not doing any good or whatever from the past. And it is an action which is based on the clarity and the wisdom and the insight uh, of the situation which may, of course, come from past experience and from knowledge and communications. But there is a knowing in this action that it's nothing to do with the notion of I am doing good. That's all. It's free from that. And when there is a... There is action, and I am doing good, and I am doing my best. Very, very easily, humanly enough, there is dependency on the result. I'm putting up so much effort, I'm really doing a lot of good in this world, and at some point, the self will probably begin to feel, oh, what's the point? I, I can't see any fruit, I've tried so hard, I've done so much for this person, I've done so much for this society, I've done so much campaigning, I've done so much teaching or working or whatever. And the I arises, identifies with the doing, and that increases the level of dependency on the result. Because the I wishes to have itself confirmed by a good outcome. Is it any wonder in so many professions there's such a high of noble professions and also noble campaigners and noble protesters 
that there is such a high dropout rate. So many people want to be out of such fine, precious work. And it means that the relationship to the activity, the whole relationship has to be looked at. And it's not about the consequences and the effect. And then the Buddha, just a moment here, switches and he speaks of karmanta. And that is the freeing up of action. There is no dependency on the result. There is a trust and wisdom of the authenticity of the action. And it is not carrying or very, very lightly this notion of what I am doing. And sometimes, especially for those of us finally in the white-haired club, as I call us, the, the sanger of the white hairs, uh, uh, there, some of us, here in the room here and elsewhere, will be currently will be well into the future as uh, well, engaged in a kind of long-term vision. Long-term means to the next generation. Not too far. And in the kind of metaphorical sense, we are planting seeds. Offering teachings would be one example of it. Being on the on the streets would be another. Developing communications and relationships with other children, grandchildren, and so forth. There. In much of this engagement, there, we will not be alive to see if there are any beneficial consequences. We're in the white-haired club. We've uh, lived through the very big percentage of our life. Already we're moving along the flow of things there. But it still makes the action valid because it's not reliant, not dependent on the result. The authenticity of the action is what matters. Not that I, as a human being, should see the benefits into the near future. And so the freeing up of the action, because it's not trapped in the karma of I and my and good and bad, is such a freeing up that one's being knows not about results. Therefore it's the liberation of action with the view that gives it support. It's a liberation teaching every time. Let's have a quiet minute, shall we?
may all beings explore our relationship to views. May all beings explore a wise response to situations. May all beings be willing to disrupt the past in order to explore fresh ways of responding. Thank you very much for lending an ear. The uh, time now is um, ten minutes past... uh, uh, Thank you. Ten minutes past uh, six... So let's say around uh, 7.20, the bell ringer will ring at 7.20, please. I'm not sure if anyone's put their autograph on that yeah, piece yeah. of paper. Yes, thank you. It's at uh, 7.20, and then we'll have a 20-minute sitting through to 7.45, and then uh, inquiry for the hour following on from that. And a small reminder that some people from living nearby may uh, drop in for an hour, hour or two this evening. <coughs> okay, enjoy the food.